So now is the time I want to invite any child ages three or four who would like you to participate in Children's Church. You can meet Mr. Dingler and Mr. Biscoglia and Alex over there, and they will bring you to the Room of Delight, the place uh, for Children's Church where there'll be uh, um, an age-appropriate way of helping them to grow in Christ. And as... uh, As that parade ensues, how about you please join with me in prayer as we ask for God's help. Lord, uh, each of us are coming um, from different spots this morning. Some of us have had just a fantastic week and your kindness is evident to us. Others are feeling at just the very edge of being able to hold on to things at all. Some of us feel completely overwhelmed right now. Some of us see you clearly. Others of us feel like you are, if even existing, far removed. Wherever we are at right now, Lord, I pray that your spirit would lead each of us to you, that you would help us to see you more clearly, uh, that you would deepen our confidence in your love, and that you'd make us more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the other day, I was watching a video of a deer that was caught in a snare. It was a really simple snare. It was essentially just like a slip knot that had been attached to a tree. And the deer, as it walked over it, kind of tripped over it, and the slip knot pulled tight on its leg. And, and the, the deer was clearly panicked almost immediately when it felt something. And at first, it was just kind of pulling and pulling. And of course, with a slipknot, the more you pull, the more you resist, the worse it gets. Then when that wasn't working, it just started trying to run. And of course, because it was tied to a tree, it just came, kept on running in a circle. And at a certain point, it would just kind of stop. And you could tell it was still panicking. It was breathing. And then it kept going and pulling. And, and at a certain point, after all of this resistance, it just seemed to stop kind of giving up, thinking that there was no way out. And as I was watching that, I actually said to myself, you know what, I think I know what that's like. I wonder if you have ever experienced something like that, being caught in a kind of snare, in a situation um, where you can't fix it, you can't escape it, a situation you desperately don't want to be in. Do you know what it is like to be in the snare. The psalm that that Scott just read for us that we'll be considering today is, in many ways, a prayer from the snare. Um, If you don't have it open, I invite you to be having it open. We'll be kind of looking at this passage throughout. And Psalm 15, we see this, this attitude, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Or as the NIV translates it, he will pluck my feet out of a snare. David is praying from a snare. He explains that a little bit further on where he talks in verse 19, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Have you ever had something like this where where someone for whatever reason is so angry with you, so opposed to you that you know they are seeking to bring about your downfall. It can be tremendously stressful. If you've ever been in a situation like that, you'll know that one of the first things that you look for are friends, allies, people who know you, who can reassure you that things are okay, who say, I will stand with you. But notice what David says. He says, verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. 
He doesn't have allies. He has enemies against him, and he is all alone. And as a result, we see what happens next. It says, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Put it in modern terms, he is experiencing trauma. He can't sleep at night. The, the thoughts just keep going around and around. During the daytime, as much as he tries to talk himself out of it, his heart is beating more. His shoulders feel tight. He doesn't feel like he can eat. He doesn't feel like he can sleep. He is, he is no way out of it in his experience. He can't fix it. He can't escape it. He is caught in a snare. The reality is, and I think we probably know this, many of us, that in this world that is twisted by sin, we will at times find ourselves ensnared in some way. In a situation that we can neither fix nor we can escape, something that we just have to get through. And it can be traumatizing. Sometimes the situation can happen just through a bunch of accidents. You find something really important in your house breaking and it's going to be expensive and you have no idea how you're going to pay for it and you're just feeling in that moment overwhelmed. Or, or you find out from a doctor you have a chronic disease and you don't know what life can possibly look like moving forward. Sometimes it's like with the case of David, someone else's fault where you have literally an enemy. I have a friend of mine who is a pastor who had someone in his church so disagree with the decision he made that he made it kind of his life's mission to bring this pastor down. And it made things miserable. He was caught in a snare. Sometimes, and, and this is honestly the worst, that snare can be our own fault. At work, we make a decision and it's catastrophic and now we have to face the consequences. Or in a close relationship to ours, we do something that is truly hurtful and, and it's not clear whether we've ruined the relationship or not. We are, are caught in a snare. We all, if you haven't yet, almost inevitably there will come a day where you find yourself in a situation like this where the emotions are beyond what you can handle because you can't escape, you can't fix it, you are ensnared. And in that moment, the question that will be just filling you is how do I get through this? What do I do in this moment to handle this as well as I can? Maybe you've heard the quote from Nietzsche that, where he says, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Anyone who knows anything about trauma knows that isn't true. That oftentimes trauma is very capable of doing the very opposites to us, of of diminishing us, not strengthening us. Oftentimes when we go through moments like this, we can come out more defensive, less trusting, less willing to risk, less willing to love, less willing to hope. We need only think about the effects that this last year has had as it seems like many in our culture have emerged from what has happened more defensive, more combative, and less trusting. It is entirely possible to come through the snare and be less yourself on the other side. But it doesn't have to be that way. Many of us have probably heard of PTSD, which speaks of the disordered effects that trauma can have, but... But psychological literature also speaks about PTG, post-traumatic growth. 
according to a number of the people in this field, about 50% or so will emerge from the other side of being in the snare, of being traumatized, and will speak of actually having a greater sense of self, deeper connections towards others, and even at times a deeper connection towards God. The Bible speaks very clearly about that possibility where James, Jesus' brother, writes, Consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials, that is, trauma of many kinds, because through this you will experience perseverance. And perseverance, James said, when rightly responded to, brings about maturity. There is a chance, a real possibility when we go through things like the snare of coming out more whole and more full on the other side. And so, of course, the question is how? If it's about half of the time that people experience stronger, what is the key for us as we want to go through this well? And this psalm is meant to help us toward that end. It is not an exhaustive answer, but what it does do is it gives us a prayer and even more specifically, a posture that we can enter into when we find ourselves in the snare that will allow us to experience growth. That posture is identified at the very beginning of our passage. Verse one, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The word soul or nephesh speaks of the very heart of who we are. It's, it's our self. It's that part that we oftentimes keep hidden when we're feeling defensive or unsure of ourselves. But, but here you can imagine David is like taking his self and cupping it in his hands and he's just lifting it up and saying, to you, Lord, I lift my soul in hope and waiting. And as he is describing this, this is not just a personal prayer or self-expression because we know that because it's a psalm and every psalm that's recorded for us is meant for the people of God, meant for us to use when we need it in the right moment. And in fact, David makes that explicit. At the very end of the psalm, did you notice where it goes? It doesn't just speak personally. He speaks corporately. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. He's signaling that this is a prayer meant for everyone who's part of God's people. In fact, if we look even closer at it, if we were to know Hebrew, which I realize most of us don't, but scholars will tell us that each of these verses, of all 22 verses, begin with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's what's known as an acrostic psalm, and, and many think that the reason for that is that it makes it easier to memorize. In other words, David constructed this in such a way so that when we don't have words, we can take these words and make them our own. When we are finding ourselves in the snare and we don't know what to do, David gives us a posture of the soul and at times even maybe even a posture of the body to enable us to respond to this moment in a way that will bring growth. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. It's an expression of a vulnerability as, as it asks, relinquishing control and waits on God. It's, it's not common for us, I think, to think in terms of vulnerability towards God. We, we do have some experience of vulnerability when it comes to our relationships with others. I was listening to an interview with musician Andrew Peterson, who's also a songwriter, this week. And I was struck by what he said. He was talking about when he first has written a new song and he first performs it. 
when the last chord is sounded, and there's that pause before there's any response by the audience, he says, it's like I have just offered my soul and my hands to them, and they can crush me or they can strengthen me. He is offering his soul. A few weeks ago, our family was watching um, the movie Notting Hill. Does anyone remember that? This like 90s romantic comedy. A lot of it is very predictable, typical romantic comedy fairs with Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. But there's this one moment that, that whenever I see it always kind of stays with me. This kind of poignant moment where Julia Roberts, who in this film is, uh, is a movie star, this glamorous person, and Hugh Grant is not. But in this moment, she comes to him and, and says to him, you know, the fame thing isn't real. Don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. And there's something about that, as cheesy as it might seem, that there's just this, this vulnerability. She is holding out her soul to him. Perhaps at work sometimes you experience something like this. Maybe you're in a situation where if you are honest, you are in over your head, and the best thing to do in that moment is to talk to a coworker or manager and to say, you know what, I don't know what I'm doing here, and I need your help. And of course, in that moment, the moment you are doing that, you are opening yourself up to being hurt, but you are also opening yourself up to being helped. Or we might think of in situations where we have blown it, where we're maybe in this ongoing fight with someone we love, and at a certain point you realize, I've just been defensive, and we let go of our defensiveness, and we just finally own what we should have owned all along and says, I am completely wrong. I blew it. Will you forgive me? In that, in that moment, we are holding out our souls. D do you know what it is to be like that towards God? To be in a position of just asking and waiting where everything that is important to you hangs on him in like a naked honesty. That is definitely not my natural disposition. If I find myself in this kind of snare-like situation where the, the fight or flight instincts go really strong and I am really wanting to control it, I'm really wanting to fix it. If not, I'm really wanting to numb it. During that initial moment where I'm experiencing this really unpleasant situation, the best I think I can do at times is just to pray Jesus help. That's about as good as I can do. But there's a moment, I think, kind of like the deer where I've been kind of brought to a place of just helplessness. And it's at that moment, and if you know that moment, it's that moment for you as well, that this prayer is written to give you a posture in that moment to just look to God and say, I have no control anymore. Lord, to you I look. I am holding out my soul to you. And I'm waiting. That's the hardest part of this posture, the waiting. Uh, David's very explicit about that. At the end of verse 5, when he says, For you I wait all the day long. If we stay within the metaphors that we've been using here in the psalm, we can just imagine David with one foot just stuck in the snare, with his arms just holding up, and he is waiting. He is hungry 
and he still waits. He is tired. His arms are getting tired, and he still waits. He is waiting for God and will not stop waiting until God answers. He is waiting all the day long. And that's, that's the, the posture that this psalm is encouraging us to engage in. And if you've ever been in a situation when you're desperate and you're just turning to God in prayer, you know that feeling, that feeling where you are asking, you're looking to him, and you're seeing no evidence whatsoever that he's doing anything about it. You are just waiting But the thing is, that posture, as hard as it is, even though our arms are getting tired, is exactly where we need to be to be able to grow through this. So the the literature that I mentioned before about post-traumatic growth, what it says is there is one overarching determining factor about whether one comes through trauma in growth or through trauma and, and receives disorder, and it has to do with our openness, Our openness to things that are outside of our control, our openness to what is new to us, our openness to other people. And that's what this posture is is training us to. It is as we are experiencing this enormously unpleasant situation to turn ourselves in vulnerable openness to God. And as we do this, God does his work on us. In fact, we can see from some of the things that David is writing in the psalm the way that God is forming him as he is holding out his hands. To begin with, as he is holding out his hands, God is giving him something really precious. He's giving David humility. You cannot be in this place of waiting with your foot in the snare and your hands up and still say, I am so in control of this moment right now. There's a surrender that's happening. There is an acknowledgement of a very simple but important fact, and that is for David that he is a creature who has very little power over his situation. And he has very little right to ask what he asks. He, He says at one point, forgive my sins for my guilt is great in verse 11. I have no right to ask this, he says. And what's more, he acknowledges that he is dependent on God for everything, not just to have God remove him from this unpleasant situation, but as he moves forward, he wants God to guide every step of the way. Have you noticed when he's praying here, he's asking, Lord, teach me. Lord, guide me. Lord, show me the way. I cannot do this apart from myself, uh, by myself. There is something that is innate to this posture as we are open to God where we are being brought to ourselves. And finally, perhaps for the first moment, after all of the time that we have wanted to manage the idea that we're in control of our own fate, we're recognizing we are not. We are helpless. And there is a wisdom to that, and there is a freedom that comes in knowing yourself truly. But that's not the only thing that God, we see, is doing as as David is holding out this posture. God is also training David's attention on what he most needs to be looking at, and that is who our God is. I've, I've discovered that whenever you are waiting on someone for anything, there is a certain moment in that process where a question occurs to you is, can I trust this person? What is this person really like? So say you have this really big, you know, like maybe you're packing, you're moving, and 
and stressful. And a person said, I, I won't be able to come there until tonight, but I will be there tonight. And it's now the nighttime. And suddenly you're wondering, will this person show up? And you have to ask the question in the back of your mind, is this the kind of person that I can trust in this moment? Or maybe you are in a situation where, like we've mentioned before, you have had to ask for forgiveness. And you said, I've really blown it. Is it possible that you forgive me? And now you're in this period of just letting them have space. And you don't know what they're going to do. And as you're waiting, you're saying, what kind of a person is this? Is this this a person who will find it in their heart to forgive me? When David is waiting on God, it is training him because our natural instinct in the moment when we're in the middle of all sorts of terrible things is to look around at everything and to try to fix everything. But when we're doing this, the only question that really matters in that moment is what kind of God is our God? Or to use the most biblical language, what is God's name? Name in the Bible refers to who our God is, to to his very identity, And notice in verse 11, as David is waiting, he says, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. My hope is not in me and my ability and my deserving. My hope is in your name. He lifts his gaze to who God is. And in these verses, we see that that David remembers who this God is. He remembers what God has shown himself to be. And as he rehearses this, he he reminds us as well of who our God is and what his name is. So verse 6, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. These are from of old. They are these eternal traits of who you are. You are steadfastly loving and you are merciful. The word steadfast love is one of my favorites in the Bible. The Hebrew word is chesed, and it's this idea of absolute determines loyal love. If you are a parent, you know that no matter how much your child might frustrate or enrage or disagree or hurt you, you are always going to be committed to their well-being. That's chesed. And and God says, that's how I am towards my people. I am steadfastly loyal. And there's a second word here, the word mercy, which also can be translated compassion, and it speaks of a feeling. It, when David is remembering this, he's remembering it's not just that God is committed in some sort of cold and detached, loyal way. The word here has this idea of aching when someone else aches. It's, it's being moved in a way that I don't think I ever will fully understand or be able to explain. When you go through suffering, God feels pain with you. David continues to reflect on who our God is, what kind of a God is, what his name is in verse 8, where it says, good and upright is the Lord. That word upright literally just means straight. The implication is, is there's no deceptiveness. God is not a God who pretends to be one thing and someone else. He doesn't have two faces. He is exactly who he says he is. I'm reminded of in Dr. Seuss. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. you remember Horton? That's God. God, whatever he says is exactly what he means. And he is good. That is his name as well. That word good is such a great word. It's It's got this idea of delightfulness, of of beauty. In other words, when we're thinking of what kind of God our God is, he's not just someone who's like, I'm willing to pull you out of stuff, but after that I don't care. It's a God who wants our joy, who wants our delight. He is good. 
when you find yourself in a moment where you are stuck, and in God's mercy, if you find yourself turning your face towards God and just waiting, these are the truths, the only truth that can sustain you. Because in the moment, it will feel like nothing is happening. In the moment, no matter how much you are crying out to God, you will see no evidence around you that God is doing anything. And in that moment, the only thing that can help you is the knowledge that God has said, I am steadfastly loyal. I will not give up on you. I am straightforward. The face that I've shown to you is truly who I am. I am a God who is compassionate. I care in that moment for the pain you're going through, and I am committed to your good. And I realize that's going to be in that moment always hard for us to hold on to because we see the suffering around us and within us. And what's more, the more we think of who God is, the more unlikely it seems that this God would care one bit about us. And yet God hasn't just said, this is who I am. He has shown it. The face of God, God's word tells us, is seen in Jesus. And so if we want to know what God's name is as we're waiting, we look at Jesus and, and what do we see? Jesus was never a people pleaser. Whatever he said is exactly who he is. He did not show one face to the powerful people and another face to the weak people. He was always the same person. He's upright. Again and again, when Jesus sees suffering, what does the Bible say of him? He is moved with compassion. In fact, when he sees people grieving over death, he weeps. What is the very first miracle that Jesus does? The miracle that is meant to show the kind of Savior he is. He makes really good wine at a party celebrating a wedding. He desires our delight. He is good. And he is so committedly good that he goes to the very cross for us. There is steadfast love. If we, if we have any doubt in the moment, and we probably will as we're waiting on God, we look at Jesus and say, that is the name of our God. That is who he is. And so as David is experiencing this as he's being brought to a clearer sense of himself, as his attention is being turned to the name of God, as he is learning the fear of God, for that's what happens as we do this. God is developing in him and all who turn in this way something incredibly important, and that is a resilient hope. Not just a kind of optimism where we pretend nothing big is going to happen. No, it's one that's very honest and recognizes how bad things are. And yet, what does verse 12 say in the middle of the snare? Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul will abide in well-being. And his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Do you see what David is seeing even in this midst moment of distress? God will sometime pull my foot out of the snare. And not only that, but he will lead me. My soul that right now it feels overwhelmed will experience good. 
I will experience the reality that my God is not just my God, but he is also my friend. That is the hope that we learn and we are given as we wait. This is how in the midst of the snare we are able to grow as we hold out our hands and wait. And I just want to say one more thing before we close, and that is we should recognize that the waiting that God calls us to is not a waiting that we will ever need to do alone. Because before any of us have entered the snare, our Savior Jesus first entered the snare. He, he went to the cross surrounded by enemies who were completely against him. He, as he was on the cross, bearing, the sin, bearing our sins for us, he was all alone. And what does he cry out in that moment? Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Jesus knows the agony of waiting in the snare. And as someone who has experienced God's goodness, bringing him back from the dead into life, he now promises us, he says, I will never leave you. I will be with you always. When we find ourselves in the snare, holding our arms up, Jesus is praying with us. Hebrews says that we have a high priest who sympathizes and he lives to intercede for you. His life right now is about praying for us. It is like even as our arms are there, Jesus is right beside us holding our arms up and sustaining us through this until we come through to the other side and all is made right. There is um, a French Catholic priest by the name of Pierre Teilhard who was a stretcher bearer during World War I and experienced some absolutely horrific things. He writes about his faith being deeply shaken, but somehow in the midst of this time, he learns this posture of Psalm 25 of just turning to God in the midst of this suffering. And he finds what he says, solace in the cross. And as he is enduring these things, he writes these letters and, and I just want to kind of conclude with some of the words that he wrote then. He writes, Above all, trust in the slow work of God. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay but give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. Uh, this morning, as we conclude, I would invite us, as we always do, to spend some time in prayer and and. I'd encourage us to even enter into this posture of Psalm 25. Maybe for you, as you're hearing this, it has provoked you to confessing sins and to repenting. I invite you to do that. If, if you are in a time that you're feeling absolutely overwhelmed and helpless, I invite you just to cry out to God. And, and I know this might feel weird, and it's okay if you don't want to do this. There's no judgment. But if you are comfortable with this, I'd encourage you, even as we pray, and no one will be watching you, to hold out your hands as kind of a, 
a physical way of expressing this posture of vulnerably waiting on God, holding out our souls to him. And in a couple minutes' time, I will be leading us more formally in prayer, but let's spend a couple minutes in silent prayer together.